Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On the morning of April 19th, 1995, Imad and Chasi drove to work at a shopping mall in Oklahoma City. Imad was the general manager of a buffet restaurant. The first thing he did when he got in was count all the money they'd made the night before. I was going to the bank to make a deposit as usual. Part of the security procedure is to have, you know, one of the waitresses to watch me until I get in my car. Imad and his colleague looked out the window to make sure it was safe to take all that cash outside. As we are about to open the door to come outside to the street, that's when the explosion happens. And it rattled the restaurant. It rattled the glass. We were so scared that the waitress actually jumped almost on top of me because we thought somebody was shooting at us trying to get the money. But the moment I opened the door, when I saw the smoke in the sky, I said, that is a bomb. That's a car bomb. Imad had grown up in Lebanon, in a family of Palestinian refugees. As a child, he lived through a brutal civil war and survived a civilian massacre in his refugee camp. You know, we, when, we, when we were little, we played named the you know, caliber of this bomb. It sounds odd, but when you grow up in a war-tour zone, those are your games that you play as a kid. The smell, the smell of a bomb exploding. I could recognize it anywhere. Imad had been close by when a suicide bomber killed hundreds of U.S. Marines in Beirut in 1983. He'd heard those explosions and felt them in his stomach. He left Lebanon for America shortly after that bombing and had lived in the U.S. ever since. On April 19, 1995, with the worst memories of his childhood flashing through his mind. Imad got behind the wheel of his pickup truck. He still had to go to the bank to make that deposit. And sitting in my car, glued to the radio, and then here comes uh, a chopper report. Wow. Look at that shot. It is absolutely incredible. The side of the federal building has been blown off, Jesse. About a third, about a third of the building has been blown away. Every window is gone, and there is debris hanging out of the windows. It is really a chaotic situation. Many people are running around trying to find friends and co-workers. Are there people missing from your office? Yeah, 26. You don't know what's happened. I can look at that building and imagine what's happened to My heart was crying for everybody. I knew there will be fatalities. There were all kinds of reports flying around in those first few hours. It seemed like the attack might not be over, that this was just phase one. We do know that they found what they believe to have been a second unexploded bomb in this building. A third explosive device has now been found, and it's Both the second and third explosives, if you can imagine this, were larger than the first. None of that was true. There was just one bomb, and it exploded in a truck parked outside of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. 
But on the morning of April 19th, no one knew much about who had attacked Oklahoma City and how and why. In Demad and Chasi, he was scared. The violence he'd escaped in Lebanon had found him in America. It just deja vu. This is what I ran away from. Several miles away, a friend of Imad's experienced the blast very differently. He was getting ready to go to the airport when his wife heard a sound that she couldn't place. I remember I was on the phone when, when, when she said there's a noise, and when she heard something, she opened the door to see if somebody hit the car or something. And she said it's nothing. Like Imad, Ibrahim Ahmed was in his early 30s and had grown up in the Middle East as a Palestinian refugee. Ibrahim wouldn't learn about the bombing for some time. He was rushing to make a flight to Jordan to see his family. You know, I still have the tickets. I still have the passport where they stand and everything. It was supposed to be Oklahoma City, Chicago, Rome, Amman on the 19th. Ibrahim was traveling to Jordan alone, while his wife Martina stayed behind with their two young daughters. He was in a hurry that morning, hunting around for his socks before he kissed the kids goodbye. A relative drove him to the airport, and he got there in time to make his 10.40 a.m. flight. We checked in my bags, took my boarding pass, left to Chicago. Ibrahim's plane landed at Chicago's O'Hare Airport in the early afternoon. As he walked into the terminal, he didn't know anything about the explosion in downtown Oklahoma City. He didn't have a cell phone, and he hadn't seen the news. When I went to the right gate for Italia airline to go from Chicago to Rome, and now the screens showing, you know, CNN was reporting, breaking news, Oklahoma. And, and I'm not even close to the TV yet. It's just like 20 meters, 15 meters. So what is your first reaction? You run. You run to really see what is going on on the screen. You, you could see the building. You can see that something big happened. So all you know is that just something bad happened in Oklahoma. Yeah, my first reaction may be more earthquake than it's a bomb. Were you worried about your family? Definitely. Immediately, let what comes to your mind. My wife, my life, my kids, my friends. I mean, that is my home now. You know, for me, this is home. Ibrahim didn't have time to check in with his family or to make sense of what he was seeing. A minute or two later, it was the custom or the immigration. They politely just came and they just told me, just, would you come with us? For Ibrahim Ahmed, that simple question was just the beginning. This is One Year, a series about the people and struggles that changed America, one year at a time. I'm Josh Levine. In our second season, we're going to tell seven stories from 1995. It was the year the nation discovered the World Wide Web, when DNA evidence transformed the justice system, and when an enormous fertility clinic scandal shocked the medical world. And it was the year white supremacist anti-government terrorists attacked Oklahoma City, killing 168 people. Ibrahim Ahmed 
had nothing to do with the Oklahoma City bombing. But in April 1995, he'd be detained and interrogated. And the media would connect his name to one of the most horrific crimes in American history. Early this afternoon, a second possible break in the case. He is described as an Arab-American with a valid U.S. passport. Oklahoma City, I can tell you, is probably considered one of the largest centers of Islamic radical activity outside the Middle East. This is one year, 1995. The man who didn't bomb Oklahoma City. Ibrahim Ahmed wasn't sure why he'd been pulled aside in Chicago. All he knew was that he needed to answer a few questions before he could board his next flight. And they take me inside to their office and they start questioning me. It was just about the trip itself, you know, and, and, and the bags, the carry-on bags, which I had. Had you ever been questioned like this before? No, never. Never. This is the first time. Ibrahim had moved to the United States in 1982. He came on a student visa. When you finally got it, you know, it's like you cannot believe it. You just carry in that passport with a visa and just show everybody. You go like crazy, like when you are on the bus and say, listen, I got a visa to go to the United States. I got a visa to go to the United States. You know, it was really, it's really a, a beautiful moment. His first stop was Long Island. He stayed with a friend's uncle. We went to, I think it was Burger King or McDonald's. So when he ordered hamburger, I told him, I don't eat pork. <laughs> and then they start laughing, you know. And they explained to me what's ham and what's hamburger, Ibrahim you know? wasn't in New York for long. A Jordanian company had gotten him admitted to a junior college in a tiny town in Oklahoma. He made friends with a small group of Muslim students. They hung out and studied, and prayed together. And they aroused the suspicion of their white neighbors. I remember that night very well. We had a calculus test next day. Somebody came and knocked on the door, and I opened the door myself, and here's around 15, 20 guys pushed the door in my face and started beating me, beating me, beating me. Ibrahim says the dean of international students advised him that he'd be safer somewhere else. He ended up at a school outside Oklahoma City. It was there that he fell in love with his new home state. You know, you lived in Oklahoma, many cowboys, you know, and that lifestyle become part of you, you know, wearing boots and a cowboy hat. I, I love that. Ibrahim worked at Pizza Hut and Arby's, and he studied computer science. In 1990, he became a U.S. citizen. You could make it in America. You could have a good job. You can't afford to save money and, and to buy your own house. And that's what happened. Ibrahim, his wife, and his two daughters lived in uptown Oklahoma City, four miles northwest of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. And the neighborhood's, I think, 100% white. 
it was very quiet, respectful. Everybody's respecting everybody. I had no issue being, being different at that time. Ibrahim didn't get rattled easily. When he got pulled aside at O'Hare Airport on April 19, 1995, he felt confused, but not annoyed. Customs and immigration officials asked him how long he'd been in the country and how he'd become a citizen. Ibrahim suspected that they thought he might be carrying a phony passport. He was happy to clear up any confusion, to prove his papers were authentic. Customs and immigration were done with him after a couple of hours, but Ibrahim wasn't free to go. A team of federal agents came in with a new batch of questions. When the FBI came, you know, it was all about the Arab and the Muslim community in, in Oklahoma or in America in general. You know, do I pray? Uh, do I go to the mosque? Do I practice my religion? Yes, I do practice my religion. I do pray, I do fast. I go to the mosque on Fridays, you know, and I, I teach my kids, you know, to adopt this religion and be a good, good Muslim, good person and so on. Were you at all concerned or were you thinking this just seems routine? You have that in the back of your head. It's like, like why me? But for me, I see it as, as, as an opportunity to, to explain to, to those people who, who may be ignorant, maybe they don't know enough about the Arab culture or the Muslim culture. I still had no worry whatsoever. The agents asked Ibrahim about the vehicles he owned and how he paid for his plane ticket. They also wanted to know if he'd ever been a part of any group that discussed violent activity against the United States. I, of course, told them I've never been part of any organization whatsoever. The FBI asked Ibrahim what he knew about the destruction of the federal office building in Oklahoma City. He told them that he didn't know anything. All he'd seen on that airport TV was that something bad had happened in Oklahoma. Ibrahim was in custody for five or six hours. He says that when it was all over, the agents told him they were sorry for the whole ordeal. You know, they really apologized and they said, well, you missed the flight and we booked another ticket for you. And now you go with British Airways to London and then from London to Jordan. They told me you will arrive Jordan around almost the same time. Everything is going now according to the schedule. Ibrahim's trip didn't stay on schedule. When he got to London's Heathrow Airport, he learned that he'd missed his connection to Jordan. There wasn't another available flight for two more days. So an agent rebooked him and gave him a new ticket. On his way out of the airport, Ibrahim handed his documents to an immigration officer. And when he looked at my name, he asked me to wait. A few minutes later, he came with, I don't remember how many guys with, with guns, security. And I looked and I see all these police or whatever they call them with their weapons and come with us. This was Ibrahim's second come with us in less than a day. But this one felt different. Ibrahim wasn't sure who those men with guns were working for but they acted like he was a major threat. I, I tell you when I start worrying. They took me to a small room. The strange thing when I entered the room, 
I saw my picture there. It's it's printed on a piece of paper, like somebody has it. Piece on of a... paper. Yes, you can see it on their their table. And the first thing they asked me to do is to take my clothes off. And now I'm start becoming annoying by this, you know. And I tell them, listen, I am American citizen, and I have the right to talk to anybody from the embassy to represent me, you know. They say, sorry, we're not going to do that. Ibrahim says he pleaded to make a phone call. They said no. He asked for a pen and paper. They refused. He said that removing all his clothes was a violation of his religious beliefs. They insisted. He needed to take off everything. I, I remember, you want me to take even my underwear? Yes, take your even underwear. Spread your legs and open your hands and turn around. And they were just looking and searching. This is a, a total humiliation, you know. You become very angry from inside. And I told them, this is no respect to me. And what happened to innocent until you're proving guilty? You know, we, we, we're not in a, in a jungle here. And, and you're treating me just like an animal now. The strip search didn't turn up anything. Ibrahim was allowed to put his clothes back on. And then he sat and waited. No question whatsoever. They didn't ask me after that any question. I was with two guys inside the room. And the room is locked and uh, nobody's talking to me. Ibrahim knew this had something to do with Oklahoma. But he still wasn't sure what had happened. He hadn't heard a news report. And the people detaining him weren't sharing any information. Every 30 minutes or so, the man who seemed to be in charge would come to that small room, open the door, and say that it would all be over soon. After a total of five hours, he brought, you know, he, he handcuffed me, and he told me, you are under arrest, and you have to go back to the United States. Ibrahim got paraded through Heathrow Airport with his wrists in shackles. There were security with, 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 with guns. All of them around you, you have the handcuff on, and, and he was dragging me, you know. Everybody was looking at you, definitely, that, that you are a criminal. Two FBI agents escorted Ibrahim onto a plane. And what made it worse, that same guy who was talking to me earlier, he came to the policeman who was sitting next to me, and he said, listen, if he tries to move or do anything, you know what to do. And he looked at me, and I remember I laughed. And I said, come on, you are here, and they are here, and I'm handcuffed. What do you expect me to do? Those FBI agents sat behind him for the whole flight. He could feel every passenger in the cabin staring at him. Ibrahim Ahmed had likely heard less about the bombing in Oklahoma City than anyone on that plane. What he didn't realize is that millions of people around the world had been hearing all about him. Immigration officials in Britain stopped a man who was trying to enter London on a flight from Chicago today. They returned him to the U.S. for questioning in connection with the Oklahoma bombing. We'll be back in a minute.
This episode is brought to you by the new Wondery podcast, Even the Royals. Being a part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families, past and present from all over the world, to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. They cover icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar award-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all, she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection, and it ultimately cost her her happiness. They also cover the story of King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him in a duty to rule that he had never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera, but this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Imad and Chassi felt shaken by the bomb that exploded in Oklahoma City and by the memories it dredged up of his childhood and war-torn Lebanon. But on the morning of April 19, 1995, as his friend Ibrahim went to the airport, Imad didn't have time to dwell on the attack. The buffet restaurant he managed opened for business at 11 a.m., less than two hours after the bombing. I opened, as usually, trying to put a facade of a happy manager. You could look at the people's faces, and everyone was in disbelief of what just happened. One of my customers, which I thought he was a friend, that's been to my house, been to my dinner table, he'd look me straight in the eye and say, you people better have not done this. You, you meaning you, the Muslims, you, the Arabs, have better not done this. And he doesn't say it discreetly. He said it as loud as possible where everybody actually hear it. And I just looked at him. I said, really? You people? Imad and Chassi and Ibrahim Ahmed were part of a small Muslim community. They worshipped in a two-bedroom apartment while the group raised money to build a mosque, a spiritual home that would deepen their roots in Oklahoma City. And I just turned around and went back into the kitchen and I called my district manager at that time. I said, I don't think I could stay here. And then, you know, he said, I, I could go home for the day. Back at home... Imad stayed glued to the radio and TV. What he heard on the news that day wasn't any more comforting than what he'd gone through at work. Today's attack was similar to the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and similar to attacks on U.S. forces in Beirut in the 1980s. That has investigators looking for a possible link to Middle East terrorists right here in the American Midwest. Federal investigators were looking for a link to Middle Eastern terrorism. Earlier that year, intelligence agencies had heard chatter that foreign extremists were planning a strike on the U.S. But early media reports after the bombing suggested something different. That Oklahoma itself was a hotbed of radical Islam, 
Sources say the FBI has been watching dozens of suspicious Islamic groups in cities throughout the American Southwest and several right in Oklahoma City. A former Oklahoma Congressman Dave McCurdy, uh, who says this is an obvious terrorist attack, pointed out that there had been meetings of Muslim fundamentalists in the area, including supporters of Hamas. That former congressman said he'd gotten his information from a documentary. It was called Jihad in America, and it aired on PBS in 1994. The documentary was produced and hosted by Stephen Emerson. These American Muslim children are attending a summer retreat in the Midwest. But this is not your typical summer camp. Here, the children are taught to praise armed struggle and terrorism. Emerson was a former CNN reporter who left the network to devote his career to researching Islamic terrorism. He used hidden camera footage to try to build a case that jihadists were infiltrating middle America. Emerson's Jihad in America won a Polk Award for excellence in documentary filmmaking, but it was also widely criticized for taking material out of context and making unsupported allegations. One critic, said the documentary created mass hysteria against American Arabs. But Emerson and many others saw the attack on Oklahoma City as proof that he'd been right. On April 19th, as search and rescue teams dug through the rubble for survivors, Emerson became a sought-after TV pundit. For Emerson, the attack in Oklahoma City appears to have a familiar mark. This was done with the attempt to inflict as many casualties as possible. That is a Middle Eastern trait. I knew immediately this, this is going to be, the blame will be, we'll be looking at the usual suspect, and that is the Muslim community. As American Muslims, we are robbed of our normal feeling of feeling sad and hurt. Immediately that feeling of feeling broken for the children and for the victims of that building was replaced by fear for me, for my family, and for my community. As Imad and Chassi watched the news on the afternoon of the bombing, that fear became less abstract. Oklahoma City police are looking for two what they call Middle Eastern, Eastern men, men in connection. Last seen wearing blue jogging suits and traveling in a brown pickup truck registered in Dallas. A citizen reported his suspicions to the Oklahoma Highway Patrol about a man possibly with a Middle Eastern appearance who had asked for directions to a shopping mall. A pair of Pakistani brothers was taken in for questioning in Dallas and Oklahoma City. And on the afternoon of April 20th, word got out about an Arab-American man who'd flown out of Oklahoma City just after the attack. Tonight, a man wanted for questioning returned to Washington aboard a British Airways jet. He was detained in London while en route... After Ibrahim Ahmed got detained at Heathrow Airport, his story was all over the news although he wasn't yet identified by name. At a press conference in Washington, D.C., reporters pressed Attorney General Janet Reno to share what the government knew. What can you tell us about the man being returned from London? Nothing other than that he is being returned to this country. Is he considered a suspect or a witness? At this point, he is being returned as a possible witness. CNN was on the case from the start. 
Well, the latest that we have, Natalie, is this, that the man that was turned back here at Heathrow Airport today after being detained is a Jordanian-American. The network was careful to note how much it didn't know. He may be a witness. He may not even be that. But CNN's minute-by-minute coverage did suggest that this could be a major breakthrough. I think that obviously it's a, a serious case. They're taking it very seriously here. They stationed a reporter at Dulles Airport in Northern Virginia to send live updates from the runway where Ibrahim's flight was scheduled to land. This is a line of official vehicles that has just pulled up here within the last five to 10 minutes. Uh, uh, Police officials in the vehicles, we expect them to be going out to pick up this person when the airplane arrives here. That evening, the story also got big play on the ABC Nightly News. Yesterday, shortly after the bomb exploded, Abrahim boarded a flight in Oklahoma City for Chicago. Abrahim later caught a flight to London. For Imad and Chassi, hearing his friend's name and connection to the bombing was an enormous shock. And as Ibrahim's plane approached the East Coast, the updates kept on coming. Now, on the news, here's the luggage of Ibrahim Ahmed. By the time officials in Chicago finished questioning Abrahim, he had missed his flight to Rome, but his three suitcases had already left. Multiple networks reported that Ibrahim's luggage had been searched. And what they found sounded pretty alarming. They discovered electric wire, silicon, pliers, and various other equipment that officials say could have been useful in building a bomb. The New York Times reported that according to Italian officials, Ibrahim's luggage held a photograph album with pictures of military weapons, including missiles and armored vehicles. And CBS had an update from a senior law enforcement official. Ibrahim fit the description of a man seen outside the federal building in Oklahoma City shortly before the blast. On the night of April 20th, both CBS and CNN broadcast a zoomed-in shot of Ibrahim's bags. The camera focused on one of his luggage tags. It showed his name, address, and phone number. Nothing was blurred out. Ibrahim's wife, Martina Ahmed, hadn't heard from him since he'd left home for the airport. She did hear from the FBI. Agents questioned her for hours, asking about how they'd met, and what Ibrahim was up to in the days before the bombing. And now, major television networks had broadcast their address in prime time. Camera crews and angry Oklahomans showed up at their door. Martina was home with their five- and two-year-old daughters. When she poked her head outside to see what was going on, someone hissed at her to get out of town. Neighbors would drive by and throw bottles of, you know, beer or throw trash. Imad and Chassi helped out his friend Ibrahim's family that night. His wife runs away to our house and, and, and came to stay with us for safety. Did she seem scared when you saw her? She was, she was not scared. She was terrified. The Oklahoma City bombing had the country on edge. The attack had killed federal workers and people applying for Social Security cards. There was a daycare center in the building. Fifteen of the 21 children there died in the blast. 
one of them, had just had her first birthday the day before. In the hours after the explosion, Oklahoma City and the nation were looking for reassurance, an announcement that whoever had done this had been caught. They were also hungry for a villain. That anxiety and anger weren't just directed toward Ibrahim Ahmed and his family. Chicago Tribune columnist Mike Royko wrote that Middle Easterners were likely to blame for the bombing. He said, when the time comes for punishment, it shouldn't be an eye for eye. We should take both eyes, ears, nose, the entire anatomy. Radio host Bob Grant told a Muslim caller, I'd like to put you up against the wall and execute you with them. The Council on American-Islamic Relations recorded 222 incidents of harassment and violence against Muslims in the immediate aftermath of the bombing. In San Diego today, police searched the Nation of Islam mosque after members of that group reported they received a telephone threat, which they taped. The barracks blew up that federal building in Oklahoma. They're blowing you up Friday. Someone threw a fake bomb into the playground of a Muslim daycare center in Dallas. A mosque in Stillwater, Oklahoma, got shot at two days in a row. And on April 20th in Oklahoma City, a group of assailants terrorized a pregnant Iraqi refugee, breaking windows at her home and shouting anti-Islamic insults. She had a miscarriage the next day. Ibrahim Ahmed's family found its way to safety with the help of Imad and Chassi. They had no idea what might happen to Ibrahim and when this was all going to end. As Imad waited to learn his friend's fate, a thought kept nagging at him. An impulse he felt ashamed of, but found impossible to ignore. When they said they found bomb-making material in his luggage, they were very convincing. The media has been so perceivably thorough in their investigation that um, I, I, I really suspected my own friend. We'll be right back. Ibrahim Ahmed's flight touched down at Dulles Airport around 8 p.m. on April 20th. For the third time in a little more than a day, he'd be placed inside a closed-off room. Before the FBI interrogated him, they asked Ibrahim to sign a piece of paper. It said that he was waiving his right to an attorney and that he hadn't been coerced. And now my mind starts thinking, Wow, it seems like now they're going to frame me for something that I didn't do. If you remember in 1995, what else happened in that year? The O.J. Simpson story. And I was watching it closely. And if you remember, the theory of the lawyers, it was like framing him for the murder of his wife. It's not him who did it. So your mind now is about, of course, they can frame you for something that you didn't do. 
Ibrahim agreed to sign that piece of paper, so long as he was allowed to write down everything that had been done to him in Chicago and London. When Ibrahim finished that account, he got driven to another location. This time, he was allowed one phone call. Ibrahim asked to be connected to his sister in Jordan. I just told him, listen, I decide not to travel in this date. I reschedule my departure from the U.S. and I will let you know when I'm coming. Ibrahim was making up a story to protect his family from worry. He didn't know that his sister and everyone else in Jordan had heard about him on the news. Later, she told me immediately when you were talking to me, she assumed, they already say Jordanian American being arrested with the connection to Oklahoma City bombing. You didn't come on time. So what what do you want us to think? And she told me even my voice was not even normal. You you try to be calm as, as much as you can, but there is some things that you cannot help. So what happens when you hang up the phone? All the questions they were about the luggage. Ibrahim's luggage had gone on without him to Rome, one of the cities on his original itinerary. So it was Italian officials who opened the bags. News outlets around the world reported what they found inside. Electronics, tools, and tubes of silicone. According to media reports, Those were possible bomb-making materials. Ibrahim had brought three pieces of check luggage on his trip. All of them were extremely full. Typical person coming from third world and come to a Western country, you always put in your bags, you buy like the maximum. Because everything you buy in the United States is really, really good quality. Do you remember some of the stuff that you were bringing on that trip? Yes, I do remember. I remember the wireless phones. I think I had like two, three of them. I remember car stereos. I remember tools, good brands, craftsmen, for example. A lifetime warranty on those things. Five tubes of silicone. Do you you remember that? When I was in Jordan four or five months before that, my father told me, you know, we have this sink that... You know, when you when you set it against the wall, you put silicone around it. And he keeps buying cheap stuff because that's the thing available in Jordan. So he said, since you are coming, why don't you get me that good silicone from the United States? It wasn't just the silicone that media outlets had branded suspicious and sinister. The New York Times had passed along a report from Italian officials. Ibrahim Ahmed supposedly had pictures of military weapons, including missiles and armored vehicles. Ibrahim says that, in reality, those were family vacation photos. My brother-in-law, he worked for the Jordanian army as an engineer. And he came to American base for training. This was in Aberdeen, Maryland. I went to visit him. And they had, I think, tanks and, and, and rockets, maybe from World War II or something. I just take my camera and I start shooting, you know. And those pictures happened to have in the album, and the album was in the luggage. 
The stuff inside Ibrahim's luggage was likely the main reason he got strip-searched in London and sent back to the U.S. in handcuffs. It's what the media seized on in reports that made it sound like he could be a terrorist. It's what caused Imad and Chassi to suspect that his friend might have something to do with the Oklahoma City bombing. And it's the only thing that federal agents wanted to ask him about on the night of April 20th, after his plane landed at Dulles Airport. Ibrahim explained everything. The photographs, the electronics, the tools. And he told them all about that silicone for his father's sink. And I remember they, they told me, how much did you pay for it? And I said, I don't know, maybe a dollar and a half, two dollars maximum for each. And, and they said, we're going to buy it from you. Yeah, the government. And I said, well, you can have it. I said, no, no, no. We want to take it to the lab and we, we cannot take it like that, you know. And, and just tell us how much you paid for it and we'll pay you for it. And they paid me. They paid me for this and had me sign a paper that, you know, that they're not taking it from me. And, and they asked me, do you know anything about silicone? I said, the only thing about silicone, it's good to use around the sink. <laughs> That's the only thing I know. <laughs> and they were just laughing, you know. The agents questioning Ibrahim believed he was telling the truth. These were not bomb-making materials. Everything else that Ibrahim said checked out too. He was not, as a CBS News report had suggested, seen outside the federal building shortly before the blast. He was just a family man from Oklahoma City who'd been on his way to visit relatives in the Middle East. You see, you are innocent. You have nothing to do with this. It was getting late now. We are talking about 11, 12 midnight. They said, you sleep tonight here with us in the building. And tomorrow we'll buy a ticket for you and you go back to Oklahoma City. And the only thing, you just can't fly to Jordan now. You have to go to court in Oklahoma City, federal court, because you are material witness. Material. What does that mean? I have no idea. You're like the least good witness of anyone living in Oklahoma at the time. You're like the only person who didn't know anything about it. Definitely. Definitely. And now, now it's like the ball of snow star, you know, rolling. They told me they bought the ticket, but it's not under my name. Because they say the media, your name now is in the media. And I say, who leaked my name to the media? And there were no answer. Ibrahim says the FBI gave him a Spanish-sounding pseudonym, something like Fernando Gonzalez. His itinerary was Washington to Nashville to Oklahoma City. So when we landed in Nashville, we had an hour or so connection between the two flights. There were many firemen going the same flight to help with the rescue in Oklahoma City. And everybody is talking about the Oklahoma City bombing. And, and they say they brought a Middle Eastern man from London back to the U.S. But they didn't know this is the person. You know, I, am, I am listening to a story about myself. And I was going, wow. Wow. It was there in Nashville, 48 hours after the bombing, that Ibrahim Ahmed first began to piece together what had happened in Oklahoma. A bomb had destroyed a federal building. Scores of people were killed. The nation was in mourning. 
Ibrahim made it back to Oklahoma City on Friday, April 21st. When he got to his house, his wife Martina wasn't there. But Martina's brother was. I said, where is my wife? And he, he, he told me she went into hiding. I said, hiding from what? See, you didn't know what, what is going on? I said, no, what is going on? Martina's brother told Ibrahim that she'd been interrogated by the FBI and that their address had been broadcast on the news, that people had thrown trash at their property, and that Martina had taken their girls to a safe place. Ibrahim's wife and daughters had stayed with Imad and Chassi, then moved on to the house of another friend. Around midnight, Ibrahim went there to reunite with his family. When they opened the door and she saw me, she really dropped like unconscious. And the poor woman, she, she freaked out when she saw me finally, you know, right in front of her eyes, you know, safe and sound. I think what she went through is much harder than what I went through. For her, the uncertainty was the, the biggest thing. Ibrahim's five-year-old daughter couldn't stop crying, even after he returned home. She said that she didn't understand why all those angry people had been outside their house. Ibrahim told her that those people had thought he was a killer and that he didn't know why. But he told her not to worry. He said, I'm safe now. You're safe. And I've got nothing to do with all this stuff. Ibrahim and his family finally made it back to their house early on Saturday morning. When he turned on the news, he learned that the real Oklahoma City bomber had been publicly identified. You you turn every channel, everybody's talking about it. And they, at that time, they already catched Timothy McVeigh. I am pleased to announce that one of the individuals believed to be responsible for Wednesday's terrible attack on the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City has been arrested. Timothy McVeigh had been pulled over for a traffic violation less than an hour and a half after the bombing, just a few minutes before Ibrahim's flight to Chicago. Police took McVeigh into custody when they found he was carrying an illegal gun. In the meantime, the FBI traced the truck used in the bombing to a rental facility in Kansas. A sketch artist made drawings of the two white men who rented it. McVeigh was hours away from potentially making bail when a lawyer recognized him from one of those sketches. McVeigh was arrested in connection with the bombing on the afternoon of April 21st. Ibrahim Ahmed's release from custody became public the same day. And sources tell CNN he was very cooperative. He's no longer considered a suspect or a witness. Instead of going back to Europe, in fact, he's going to Oklahoma City himself voluntarily. Ibrahim's exoneration did not make big headlines. The Washington Post mentioned it in the 36th and final paragraph of its front-page story on McVeigh's arrest. Now your story is, is gone. It's history. Your story is nothing. You know, you are completely forgotten. Nobody is talking about what happened to you and your family. For Ahmad and Chassi, it was hard to see his friend's release and Timothy McVeigh's arrest as anything but an enormous relief. Imagine that you are drowning under the water 
and you're about to take your last breath and then somebody pulls you. It was like, you know, really, um, that the soul is coming back to my body. It was like, I could go back to my grief. I could go back to feeling with the victims and their families. There was one other thing that Iman needed to do before he got closure. After Ibrahim got home, Imad sat his friend down and made a confession. Couldn't look him in the eye. Ashamed, looking down. I was in, in a very hesitant voice, told him, you know, the media was very strong in condemning you, in uh, pointing the finger towards you that, you know, some of the people here actually, including me, thought maybe you have done it. And I, I begged for his forgiveness and he forgave me for that. After 9-11, Imad and Chassi felt a calling to become an imam. He wanted to spread peace and understanding and to promote a positive image of his faith in the media. He's now the senior imam of the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City. He's given sermons on the doubts he felt about Ibrahim after the Oklahoma City bombing. He tells that story as a reminder not to rush to judgment. He thinks about that lesson every time he sees his friend. We'll you know, hang around the mosque, um, go have lunch, or you know, his wife and my wife are still good friends. But um, uh, you know, Ibrahim was here a few days ago, actually, and I, I swear I could still not look him in the eye. The date of the Oklahoma City bombing, April 19th, had special significance for Timothy McVeigh and his collaborator, Terry Nichols. It was the second anniversary of an event that had helped stoke the American militia movement, the federal raid in Waco, Texas, that ended with the Branch Davidian compound burning and 76 people dead. That connection, which pointed to anti-government domestic terrorists, didn't get major media attention in the hours after the attack on Oklahoma City. The bogus connection to the Middle East? That did. Two of the experts who touted that Middle Eastern link were former Congressman Dave McCurdy and Stephen Emerson, the producer of the documentary Jihad in America. McCurdy said he was sorry if anyone thought he'd jumped the gun, but continued to insist that Islamic extremists had met in Oklahoma City. Stephen Emerson said he'd done nothing wrong in declaring a possible link to Middle Eastern terrorism. I have never referred to as uh, American Muslims as the subjects of somebody who should be investigated. I've always said very precisely that militant Islamic terrorists and suspects are the ones that should be investigated. Emerson is now the executive director of the Investigative Project on Terrorism, which calls itself the world's most comprehensive data center on radical Islamic terrorist groups. After Timothy McVeigh got caught, News outlets had to reckon with the choices they made in the hours after the bombing. CNN had broadcast the names of four individual Muslim men who, it turned out, had nothing to do with the bombing. One of them was Ibrahim Ahmed. CNN's executive vice president stood by the network's choices. He said they were not in the business of keeping secrets from their viewers. 
CNN's Wolf Blitzer, Bernard Shaw, and Bruce Morton also defended their early focus on the Middle East. I'm sure that in the postmortem of this, there will be a lot of criticism of the news media. There already, the, the already way we is. Handle, the way we handle it. But of course, as all of us know, we're just reporting what we hear from reliable sources. I think everybody made a, a serious good faith effort to get this right. And uh, Arab Americans were right to be sensitive. They've been victimized before. But this came out pretty evenly, I think. CNN's live coverage of this day of healing. One year later, on the anniversary of the bombing, a number of journalists checked in on Ibrahim. He said that his life was in shambles. Of course it changed our life forever. We don't feel we are welcome in this country anymore. Part-time jobs shunned by neighbors, counseling for him and his wife, and a family divided. He sent his daughter to Jordan to escape the attention. Ibrahim had a recurring nightmare. He was in a courtroom, and a judge told him, You killed those people, and we're going to hang you. He filed a lawsuit against the government, saying that he'd been detained because of his ethnic heritage. But Ibrahim eventually dropped that lawsuit. In our conversations, he wanted to focus on the positive things that happened after his detention. The people who left flowers on his doorstep, and who sent his family notes of sympathy and solidarity. He's held on to those letters for 26 years, from a women's Bible study group, a Sunday school class, and a man who offered to paint his house for free. You know, when you, when you see something like that, you really forget about everything that you went through. There's another human being is feeling like you. This is America. This is America that when I came in 1982 to live this dream. Ibrahim left America in 1999 to be closer to his aging parents in the Middle East. For now, he lives in Bosnia, and he wants to open an American-style fast food restaurant in Sarajevo. It's going to specialize in fried chicken. Ibrahim still travels to Oklahoma City as often as he can. When he's there, he goes to Imad and Chassi's mosque to pray and to say hello. He hopes that, someday, he'll be back again for good. If you exclude the first three days, 1995, Oklahoma, I think in America everything was positive for me. This is the, 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 the place where you really feel home. You know, this is, this is really home. If you're interested in hearing more about our season on 1995, you'll want to sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members will get an exclusive add-on to this week's show, where one-year producer Evan Chung joins me to discuss why we chose 1995 and how we make our series. We'll also give you a preview of upcoming episodes. To hear that conversation and other members-only content, sign up for Slate Plus, at slate.com slash one year plus. You'll also get to listen to all Slate podcasts ad-free, and you'll be supporting the work we do here at One Year. That's slate.com slash one year plus. (laughs) 
next time on One Year 1995. A group of American teenagers sets off for one of the world's most prestigious universities and finds something totally unexpected. Then I remember when I was coming up from the main house, that's when someone first said, um, you know, there's an issue with this isn't actually part of Oxford. And that's when I went, I'm sorry, what? One Year is produced by me and Evan Chung, with editorial direction by Loen Liu and Gabriel Roth. Madeline Ducharme is One Year's assistant producer, and we got additional production help from Shana Roth. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1995 at oneyearatslate.com. And you can call us on the One Year hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Our mix engineer is Merritt Jacob. The artwork for one year is by Jim Cook. Imad Nchasi wrote a memoir about his life in Lebanon and Oklahoma City. It's called Cloud Miles. Some of the audio you heard in this episode comes from CNN. Special thanks to Andrew Gumble, Adam Soltani, Suheb Webb, Kelsey Poe, Reverend Markini, Syed M. Saeed, Eamon Ishmael, Alicia Montgomery, Christina Cotarucci, Jared Holt, Laura Bennett, Allison Benedict, Holly Allen, Katie Rayford, Asha Saluja, Amber Smith, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Chow Tu. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more from 1995 next week.